Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954, when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992, when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit, ahead of the 91 FA Cup final, quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. This week, I'm talking with Gary Bailey, the former Manchester United and England keeper, son of Ipswich's title-winning keeper Roy and Gary himself, as we'll hear. As part of Ron Atkinson's very talented early to mid-80s side, really should have had at least one league title winner's medal of his own. He almost did, but not under Atkinson. The less stellar Dave Sexton side of 1979-80 almost landed a surprise title win in a neck-and-neck battle with Bob Paisley's greatest Liverpool side. And had United claimed that unexpected title, the club's modern history would have been very different. Taken over from Alex Stepney between the posts, Gary's nine seasons at United actually made him the longest-serving keeper at United for four decades, a record only recently overtaken by David De Gea. Gary in this interview talks about his goalkeeping idols, Ray Clements especially, his struggles adapting to life in England alone as a young man after returning to the country of his birth after growing up in South Africa, not just the homesickness but the cultural differences too. It becomes clear during this interview that despite his relative youth, he was just 20 when he made his debut for United against his dad's old club Ipswich in 1978, Gary was very much his own man. United's new number one wouldn't buy into the drinking culture pretty much everywhere in English football at that time and for decades to come. We look at his battle to usurp Peter Shilton as England's number one and the knee injury that comes while with England that eventually ends his career at the highest level at just 27. Here's Gary Bailey. You were born in Suffolk, but raised in South Africa. What took your family to South Africa in the first place? Um, my dad was playing for Ipswich at the time. Um, in fact, he won the league with Alfred Ramsey in 61-62. And then new manager came along after Sir Alf took the England job. And um, he decided it was time to go and you know earn some money playing soccer abroad. He had two options. One was Australia. The other was South Africa. And in those days, BOAC, the old former version of British Airways. It took, I think, half a day to get to South Africa and probably two days to get to Australia. So right. him and my mum decided South Africa was the, the easiest option and they were going to come play soccer for a year or two and come back to London. 
they just love South Africa. They love the lifestyle like so many Brits did in those days. I think a lot of immigrants went out there to work in the mines and there was a huge expat community. And so they decided to stay, you know, great weather, great schools, great options. And he turned from player to player manager to manager. And so I had the benefit of one of the top managers in the country. And ultimately, he became the national manager uh, as my personal coach. So I, I, did, I did rather have a sort of a helping hand along the way. Had you followed English football while you were out in South Africa? Um, yeah, we did. But we never had television until 1978. To, to do it, we had to go downtown on a Saturday and, no, sorry, on a, on a Wednesday and get the tapes that were sent over after the game on a Saturday. And, you know, a whole bunch of expats would sit in this cinema type situation and uh, probably weren't even tapes. They were probably those, you know, movie reels. And so you got just to see a few highlights of games. But my first memory uh, before that was radio, which we used to listen to the BBC World Service. And um, it was 1973. George Best was Man United, Sheffield United. Sheffield United had come up and gone straight to the top. I think Tony Curry was playing. They'd won all their games. They went to Old Trafford and Best he put on a masterclass and won 2-0. And I just remember listening to that. And, you know, when you hear the whoosh and the noise and you, as a kid, you just picture, you know, 80,000 people at Old Trafford and you think, wow, this is, this is sensational. This, one day I've got to go and see this and, and visit and find out what English football is all about. Were you too young to have remembered seeing your dad playing or did you see anything of him playing out in South Africa? I remember one game in fact, against Spurs, as I remember it. My parents told me about it many times. That's so probably more like the memory. But he was playing Tottenham in the year in which I think Tottenham did the double, which was the year before my dad won it or the year after. Not quite sure which. He came out of at Greavesy's feet and Greavesy kicked him in the head and broke his nose. <laughs> right. And um, and I was in the stand as a five-year-old with my mum. I burst into tears and my dad was on the ground and they came in and you know, those days they just patch you up and throw some cold water on your nose and off you go. And that was sort of my only real memory of watching him play in England. But no, I, didn't, I had no memory of him playing South Africa. So um, you have no way of knowing, or maybe your dad would have known, whether you were a similar style of keeper to your dad. Yeah, he would have known. But um, I mean, we were very, we're the same height, same size. It's, it's difficult. I mean, we always had an ongoing thing. He won the league with Ipswich and I got an England cap and that was always his dream. And Gordon Banks was in front of him. And those days only were two. I think the other one was Springett. And they never got injured. He never got his cap. So we, you know, used to have this argument: you were never as good as me, or, or you're better than me. And but my basics were fantastic because he taught me, and that's what he always said. He said that my my fundamentals were were rock solid. Um, but otherwise, I think we were similar keepers. A different era. Uh, my dad's one much more physical, as I would say now about the current era. I mean, <laughs> our era of the '80s, we got smashed around. Now you can't touch the keeper. But I think in many ways we were similar. We were good in the air, good organisers, very chirpy keepers, uh, agile. So, yeah, but again, as you say, I never really saw him play. And I, there, were no, there wasn't a single bit of footage of him playing for Ipswich. I mean, how they won the league and no one had a single bit of footage of them, I don't know. But that's, I guess that's, you know, when you're Ipswich, no one really seems to care. Growing up in South Africa, and as you said earlier, you're listening to games on the radio, and that's given you a real interest in English football. Who were your favourite keepers, and how were you able to see anything of them? It's hard to say. I mean, 
you know, Gordon Banks stands out just because of, of 1970. I think I was just becoming aware of football as a, a young teenager and the whole, you know, England going to defend their crown and the whole uh, save against Pelé in the quarterfinals and all that. That, that, that was, so Banksy was always the one for me. And then when I started sort of finishing school and 15, 16, Ray Clements was the keeper that I really thought was fantastic. So the, the, the bits of footage I did see, um, those two stood out and it was just weird coming to England and within a year of, of arriving as a young sort of 20 year old coming face to face with Ray Clements at the other end of the pitch. It's, it happens to every, every young footballer when you turn into a, a pro and face the very people that you've been idolizing for years. But I, I would say Ray was, Ray and Banksy would have been my two big heroes. You joined United in their centenary year in 78, 79. I think I've read this story. You were in the Netherlands at the time, and there's an advert. Is it in Shoot magazine yeah. for, for United mm. uh, holding trials for young keepers? Quite unusual, uh, an unusual approach to take. Maybe not in those days, but certainly in these days, you think, well, that really did that really happen? So how did you yeah. how how did you come to find out about this advert? I mean, the, the whole thing of getting to United was was strange back in the day because you didn't have foreign players. I think Ozzy Ardiles was the first sort of real foreign player to to arrive. But um, I'd actually been to England the year before. I'd been on trial at Ipswich, obviously my dad's connections. Uh, and Bobby Robson was very kind and, and they put me up in digs and it, it snowed for six weeks. Right. And so I was... <laughs> I never got to kick a ball, seriously. I mean, they just didn't have a, they had a practice session in a gym. And Bobby said, look, until, the, until you can get on the grass, there's, there's no point you're coming to training. And so eventually I just went to London to my granddad and sat in his, his flat in Croydon and just played cards with him for another two more weeks until my flight home, um, which was such a pity because that was the, the era of Bobby Robson when he bought Butch and uh, Terry Butch and all the, all the guys through and had a lovely team. And I think it's a team I would love to play for because they were young and fun and, and they, they played without pressure. And so I went home and, and when I landed in Joburg after nine weeks of, of, of winter in, in, in England, I swore never to go back. I said, I, I landed, went straight to the swimming pool, lay under the palm trees and thought, that's me. I'm never, ever going back. And then during the course of that year, I got to represent South Africa as an 18 year old. I had a very good season playing for my university team at the, in the first division. And my dad said, look, to be honest with you, you've got a real chance here. You should, you should give it a crack. And there was an agent taking some some young players um, to Europe. So my dad said, Gary's keen to come along. And I, just, I thought, I'm not going to England. It's too cold. I'll go to Holland. Uh, that's where the agent was going. And I thought, you know, I speak Dutch uh, from South Africa. Um, you know, it's, it's less pressurized in England. Uh, hopefully the weather's better. And I just thought, okay, let me give it a try. And I went to Alkmaar and just, you know, uh, trained. And they gave you the normal sort of story. You know, not bad, son. Here's a, here's a youth contract. And I went, went to Hamburg for two days. And they were talking about a youth contract. And it was on that train going to Hamburg that I was passing time reading a shoot magazine. And it said, Alex Stephanie's retiring, looking for a young keeper. And I phoned my dad and said, can you get me a trial? Just, you know, if they're looking for a young keeper, let's give it a shot. And he phoned Dave Sexton. And he said, Dave said, fine, he'll give you a trial. Meet up at a hotel in London. They're playing West Ham. And I went to this hotel a couple of days later. And I saw Martin Bucken walking down the stairs. And I said, Mr. Bucken, hi, Gary Bailey. I'm here to have a trial at the club. Dave Sexton said to meet him here. And he went, yeah, you and the entire world. And walked straight past me. And I went, what? <laughs> what the hell just happened there? Obviously, I have no concept of the constant, you know, the, the constant sort of pressure the players are under to talk to the fans and the, the BS that the fans come up with. I had to wait another 10 minutes for Dave Sexton to walk down the stairs, introduce myself, and then 
we went to Upton Road, watched the game, went back to, to Old Trafford, played in a reserve match the following night. And the following morning, Dave Sexton said, I want to see you in my office. And I thought he'd give me the normal, you know, thanks for coming, stay in touch, send us a video, blah, blah, blah. He said, we're all very impressed. We want to give you a four-year contract. And I went, what? <laughs> I hadn't planned to stay. I was going back to South Africa. I want to go back to the palm trees. This wasn't in my plans, you know. <laughs> uh, so, of course, I signed up and absolutely, I'll, I'll be here. And that was the, the beginning of it. Did you feel under any pressure because you were replacing a club legend in Stepney? He'd been there for 12 years. He'd won the league, the European Cup, the FA Cup the year before. Or at that age, do you not quite get the concept of pressure? Well, the pressure wasn't to replace Alex. There were five keepers. Paddy Roach was the number two. There was somebody else. The pressure was just being at the club because, I mean, a true story, as, as I walked in, there was quite a tall guy walking out six foot two and he looked at me and he went, are you Gary Bailey? And I went, yes. He said, thank you very much. And I went, what are you talking about? He said, I've been here seven years all the way through the youth teams. You arrived, they've kicked me out and you've taken my place. And with that, he walked away and I went, wow, that's my first interaction with anybody at the club. So, and I sat down on his seat next to him, this big, big center half turned to me and said, my best mate's just left, and if you aren't effing good, I'll eff you up, something like that. And I went, wow, okay, so this is going to be tough. <laughs> and so then I was fifth choice keeper, then fourth choice, then third. You know, I sort of worked my way up, as one does, fairly quickly because I was at a decent standard. I'd already represented South Africa. Then Paddy Roach had a night. Uh, Alex Stepney broke his arm. Alex had uh, Paddy came in at a nightmare, and that's when they went to sign Jim Blythe from Coventry. That fell through, and literally on the day before the match, Dave Sexton came along gave me a great motivational speech. He said, you're the only goalkeeper we have left at the club. <laughs> you're playing tomorrow against Ipswich Town, believe it or not. I mean, that was just incredible coincidence. That was how I got to make my debut at 20 years of age. And even at that stage, I thought, you know what, I'll play a game or two. They'll, they'll sign, if not Jim Blythe, they'll sign someone else. I'll drop down the standings again and I'll go back to university because I'd left university halfway through and was very keen to finish and, and was missing it, in fact, after a year of sitting, training two hours a day and watching television from <laughs> two in the afternoon. I was brain dead at that stage. I was desperate to go home. Um, so I thought, great, I'll play one match for United. It's there on my CV. I'll say I've done it. And didn't quite work out that way. I stayed for the next 10 years. <laughs> Your debut, as you say, was against Ipswich. United won 2-0 in torrential rain. Your performance was widely praised in the papers. Then the following game, I think the press, the same press, give you a difficult time after mm. uh, a defeat uh, to Everton. Were you one to read the match reports throughout your career or did you steer clear of them? It was impossible to steer clear of, and they really bugged me. They really bothered me. I tried to limit the amount I read them, but as a keeper, you're almost never good enough. Almost never. Uh, there's, and especially at United, you know, if you're winning trophies like Ray Clements was and you're playing for England, then I'll, I'll get off your back. But I had Clements and Shorten ahead of me at England, so I was always a third choice. There was always that thrown in, and United were always coming second and third in the league. So... Yeah, it was a constant pressure. I did learn very quickly because after the match against Ipswich, the press were all like, oh, wow. And will you have a picture done? And they gave me an umbrella and I held the umbrella up. And the headlines were Bailey singing in the rain, something like that. And I went to Everton. Bob Latchford was told to rough me up and he did a hell of a job. He stood on my toes. He hit me in the unit. What's he elbowed me in the face. He did everything and I was flapping and they really did a number on me, Everton. And I, I came out for a few crosses and didn't get them. And you know, it wasn't a good performance. And afterwards, they put the same picture up and they said, drowning in the rain. And I thought, okay, 
So this is how this is going to be played. And Dave Sexton came up to me. We played Chelsea the next uh, on the Saturday. That was Saturday, Wednesday. There was a midweek game against Everton. He said to me, look, Gary, here's the facts. That Everton performance, unacceptable. He said, if you do not play well against Chelsea, he said, I'll give you this last chance. If you don't play well, you're out. It's as simple as that. And we won 1-0. Kept a clean sheet, played well, played well the next couple of games. And, and sort of, as you do, you just hang in there and, and, and hope it all goes well. And next thing it was an FA Cup run and um, a couple of good performances. And before you know it, you're out at Wembley. So, you know, it's a precarious start. And you know that at any moment you're going to get kicked out or they're going to buy somebody. But it just it just seemed to work out for me. We've had a few questions come in ahead of this uh, interview with you via Twitter. Pompey80s, he asks, I think you kind of answered this. Was Gary expecting United to sign a big time keeper when he got in the side? Or did he know he would be long term? Oh, no, no. Everything was short term. So short term, it was literally week to week. I mean, um, in those first sort of two, three months, the Argentinian goalkeeper, I think it was called Filial. Yeah. Uh, he was linked with the club every single week. You know, so were other goalkeepers. Um, but every time something went wrong, something went right. So we played West Brom in a very famous match in December. I think it was about my seventh or eighth match. And I picked out two out of the top corner from Cyril Regis, which when I spoke to Cyril years later, we were in the end of 21 England team together and then in the full squad. He said, I still, it's still the greatest save I've ever seen. You know, pity because if you make that save in a cup final, everyone remembers it, but it, you know, it was made on a normal league match. But he always says, he says, wow, those were just two incredible saves, but we lost five, three. Now, if I hadn't made those saves, people would have said, ah, chuck the keeper out, but you make two saves and people go, oh, okay. So it can't be the keeper's fault. It must be someone in front. We played Ipswich the year later, got beat six, not a save three penalties. So, you know, it just <laughs> at every stage, um, when you think, there might be a reason for the manager to throw you out. I just managed to get through. And then, you know, you survive. You don't have any long-term expectations. And before you know it, I was a regular England under-21 goalkeeper, regular at United. We finished second in my first full season, 1980. And I played really well, really, if I can say so myself. I had a really fantastic season. Finished runner-up to the Young Player of the Year Award. Glenn, Glenn Hoddle got it. I came second. So everyone's like, wow, we've unearthed, you know, fantastic goalkeeper going to take over from Shilton and Clements, blah, 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 full of praise. Next season, bang. <laughs> everything started to go wrong. In the way everything had gone right, everything went wrong for me. And, and then you come under real pressure and that's when you get tested. Another question on, on Twitter, and we'll come to the 79-81 um, period under Sexton in, in a moment. Eops wants to ask you about wearing gloves. He says, I'm sure Gary didn't wear gloves initially. I actually couldn't afford proper gloves and used to make out it was a choice because I idolized Bailey. In terms of your career, at what point did you take to wearing gloves? I didn't need them in South Africa because um, of the weather. Although it did rain. I mean, it's crazy to think you'd play without gloves in the rain. Um, but they gave me gardening gloves when I got here. They were just plain green string gloves. I think Alex Stepney wore them as well. And I put them on and nothing would stick. <laughs> Not that it ever did stick, but nothing would stick with those gloves on. Um, but they would stop your fingers from getting broken and all that. So my first sort of season was wearing these green gardening gloves. And, and that's, you know, a lot of players get signed even today and they don't make the impact you think. A lot of it's because you're settling in. You're settling into different climatic conditions, cultural language. Although I was English, I wasn't. I was South African by nature, English by birth, of course. So, you know, everything was new. The weather was like, how does it rain so much in this place? Why don't you have a beach you can go and lie on? Why, you know, you know, how does one get used to playing in this cold, especially as a keeper when you're standing around? 
I think when Real Sport bought out the proper glove in 1980, I bought it and I went to, you know, train with it and stuff would stick and I'd go, holy crap, this is it. This is one of the best inventions of all time. Because literally it was, just put your hands up and bang, forward, stick, and you're like, wow. And it gave your, your fingers a bit of support and stopped them getting broken. So that was a huge change for me. I mean, I, I look back at some of the old footage of me with these green gloves. It's one against Liverpool in the semi-finals of 79, the FA Cup. And I caught one one-handed at the back stick uh, with these green gloves on. And I think now that's almost impossible to do because there's no grip on those things. So, you know, you just found a way to get around it. But yeah, I mean, to answer your question, once those proper gloves came along, it's like, wow, what a difference they made. Talking about the FA Cup semi-final against Liverpool, United go through after a replay. You lose the final to Arsenal, the dramatic five-minute final. Mm -hmm. Did the FA Cup run that year perhaps save Dave Sexton's job? It probably did. Probably did. They hadn't been playing well in the league. And even when I took over midway through, it was a bit of a shambles at the back at times. So, yeah, it did. And, and, you know, people will remember the, the last five minutes and, it's a tough one as a keeper. You know, you come for a cross, you've got to get it. So at the end of the day, they would always look at me. That was a hell of a good cross from Graham Ricks. You know, Arthur Alberson hadn't covered at the far post. Sunderland does well to get all those things added together. But at the end of the day, it's a keeper's job to, to either come for a cross and get it or stay. So, you know, you take the knock, which, which was tough at the time because, you know, I'd played well on the way to Wembley and that's what gets lost in this. You know, we, we started off at Fulham drawing 1-1 in the rain in January, you know. A couple of other good results. The two semi-finals against Liverpool were epic games. Epic, because they were, I think, European champion, top of the league, had a hell of a team. And and it's um, one of those games that people remember because you're both wearing your away strips. It's it's the yellow against the white and black in yeah. United. It's two semi-finals. Yeah. 40 years ago, and people still remember those games. Yeah, great games, but unbelievable games. The tension, the vibe, the, the spirit they were played in, the quality of players they had. I mean, again, it's European champions. But I mean, the difference today is, is and I, I go to, have been going to a lot of United matches, obviously not the last couple of years with COVID. And the vibe is great and the singing's wonderful. And, but, and I'm sure you and, and all your listeners would agree that, that the vibe in the eighties was just on a different level. I mean, walking into those semi-finals, you walk into a wall of sound and the rise and fall. And when Jimmy Greenoff scored what turned out to be the winner in the, 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 the replay at Goodison Park. Man, the hair on your arm stood on end. It was, and then we, of course, we, we won it and we all went down to the United fans to celebrate. And it was real, it was real gut-wrenching stuff. You know, I know players fight for the jersey today and, and there's no question when I watch United play, for example, that player, players give 100%, but players gave more than 100% and your, your emotions were on the line. We, we were shattered afterwards. And then to try and get up again for the Wednesday game, it was, it was like you were going into war. Today, yeah. Again, it is tough today. In those days, it literally was a flipping war wherever you went. That's how much it meant to the fans. That's how much it meant to the players. And, and you got kicked and pushed and shoved. <laughs> so you knew you were in a war. So, uh, yeah, those semi-finals. And, of course, you go to a final, which in itself, back in the day, was the match. And for South Africans, it was the only match they got to see live. So everybody I knew was watching. And, of course, you lose in the last minute. You you can't tell people that you played well on the way to the final because that's irrelevant. You can't tell them that it was a good cross and it was, you know, it just was one of those you take it on the, on the, on the chin. And so I went back to South Africa and four weeks everywhere I went, people were like, Oh, it's awesome. You made the final, but why did you mess up? <laughs> and you come back and you start the new season and it turned out to be a great season. As I said, we finished second 
went into the final day of the season with a chance to win the league. So, so maybe losing just helped me keep my feet on the ground. Who was coaching you in your early years at United? I mean, did you have a goalkeeping coach? I know Harry Gregg was briefly mm. at United. Was he involved in working with you? Yeah, yeah. Harry became my coach, which was great because Harry was a wonderful guy. We got on really well. You know, he coached me for, I think, maybe a year and a half. And then when Ron came, Ron didn't like goalkeeper coaches, so I didn't have a coach. And, and that's a pity because I'm that sort of, I'm a thinker. So I wanted to go through, I kept every video of every game I watched, I improved, I I needed some sounding board to talk it through. And when Harry got sacked, when Ron arrived, I was left on my own. And, and that was that was tough for me to deal with that because uh, my dad had been my coach before that. So I'd always had somebody to, to analyze things with. And, you know, I kept a list of penalty scorers back in the day, when, you know, long before it's fashionable now. I had all of those lists I knew. That's why I was able to save three against against Ipswich. I had a pretty good idea which way Kevin Beattie was going to go. Or I think it was Trevor Wymark who took the other. So, yeah, but Harry, lovely guy, huge, huge help. But as I said, back in those days, there weren't that many goalkeeper coaches. In fact, if I remember one of the ex-goalkeepers was Hodgkinson. He used to yeah. go from club to club. That's how he made his living. He wasn't a goalkeeper coach at one club. He'd go to Villa on a Monday, West Brom on a Tuesday. and Yeah, because goalkeeper coaches weren't really part of the coaching setup. So in 79-80, you've got uh, Ray Wilkins has arrived from Chelsea and as you say, United finished second, just two points behind one of the great Liverpool teams of that era. That second place under Dave Sexton, you look at the team that comes in later under Ron Atkinson, which player for player at times the Ron Atkinson era was an outstanding team, but that Dave Sexton team actually finishes second, which an Atkinson team doesn't manage to do. Had United won the league in 1980, you're talking about the modern history of United being very different, perhaps. You, mm. you would have been able mm. to attract even better players for a push at the European Cup. Had you guys gone into that season expecting a title push or had it come as a surprise? I think it came as a surprise. I think we finished, I don't know, seventh or eighth the year before the, my, my first season. But we started to get things together. We started to get organized at the back. Um, they started to accept me. I think, you know, initially it was like, who's this mouthy young kid in goals? I mean, I was everything, you, you know, that shouldn't have worked. I was a young keeper. Not a good idea. Goalkeepers only mature at 26, 27. I just turned 20. So I was a kid. I was a South African mouthy kid, which they weren't used to. I come from university and was finishing my degree while I was still playing. They weren't used to that. So it was a, it was just a massive culture clash and, and, yeah, had I done things differently, I would I'd rather have worked my way up and eventually gone to United. But you know, you take the chance that comes. Uh, but I think they accepted me the way I, I handled the FA Cup final. I didn't scream and shout. I didn't blame everyone. I took it on the chin and moved on. And they were like, okay, this kid's all right. And so we started the new season. And, and I said, all right, Gordon McQueen, I want you there. Buckin, I want you there. Jimmy Nicola, I want you there. And they went, okay, we'll do it. And so we got very well organized and uh, we were good at the back. I had a fantastic season. And, you know, in the air came and collected everything I needed to collect, made good saves, got man of the match award a whole bunch of times. So it really was a good season. And we didn't have a great side. We didn't deserve to be champions, but we'd have taken it. <laughs> no question about that. Where Joe Frumpig, Joe Jordan, and the, we, we won one nil. That was our, we were, I don't know if folk in England watch Atletico Madrid a lot, but uh, I cover Spanish football here in Miami and that sort of, we defend really well, solid defend, go up and steal a goal, hold on to it. So we, we wouldn't have really deserved to have been champions. But you're right, it would have changed the history because every year, it's just the same thing. It's 22 years since we won, 23 years since we won. But the Atkinson team was the team to win the league title. That was. 
a league championship winning team. And every season, whereas that season we finished second, we didn't have any major injuries. Things went well. Under Atkinson, there was always some drama, some major injury that stopped us from winning that league title. The following season, there are injury problems at United. Martin Buchan is out for a long spell. McQueen is out for a spell. Ray Wilkins is out for a spell. Gary Bertels has arrived from Forest and he's struggling for goals. Were you surprised to see Dave Sexton go or was it inevitable given the expectations at a, at a club of United's size? Yeah, it, it, it probably was. I think, you know, we, we won the last seven games of the season to sort of put a, a band-aid on the season, but, but it, um, that wasn't good. My form wasn't good, I'll be the first to admit. And again, with, with young players these days, you put them in for a spell and then you pull them out and go, okay, well done. Go, go spend time with the family and recuperate. And because psychologically, it's massive pressure. But not in those days, you just kept going. And so, you know, we had this fantastic season. We finished second. I went on an England tour, went home for two weeks, came back and it all kicked off again. And I went, whoa, okay. And I lasted two months and the batteries just ran flat. I lost interest. Which sounds a bit crazy, but you know, it was just, just kept on coming at me game after game pressure. And you sort of, and you've only got to come down 10% for you to be in trouble. You know, and I missed a cross and then the papers wrote something nasty and then missed something the following week. And then, boom, once, once you've, once you've got the attention of the press that, you know, maybe you're going through a bad spell, then they just heap it on. Then everything that went wrong was my fault, even if it wasn't. You know, we got knocked out of the cup at Forest near post header or, you know, waist height. Not my fault. I'm not even there. But they asked me in the press conference and I said, well, maybe I should have organized my back four better. And suddenly Bailey's to blame. But the bad run continues and you're like, oh, okay, now I'm in trouble. So that was a really, really tough season and, and, a, and a season that taught me about professional football. Because again, coming from the outside and coming from university, I had no idea um, of how tough it is. But when you're a 14 year old and you've seen your mates being told they were not going to be players and, you know, the kids that came through the system really had a sense of it's dog eat dog world. But for me, coming from the outside from university, um, I had a different perception. So yeah, that was a tough season. A lot of injuries, as you say. Uh, Sexton got the sack, which I guess was inevitable. Ron arrived. And then next thing I know, I'm being salt Nottingham Forest and Shilton's arriving and I'm thinking, okay, well, you know what, maybe I'm just actually going to go abroad and rather go and play in Spain and, and have some fun. And Ron arrived and put me in a training session and then came off afterwards and said, <laughs> he said, wow, you're much better than I thought. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, watching you from afar, we've always thought you were a soft touch and you weren't that good, but we could target you. But now I've seen you in goals. He said, wow, no, no wonder Dave Sexton wanted to, you know, build his, his, his defense around you. So I was like, oh, okay, thanks for the compliment. And that was how Ron saw it. He said, no, I'm not going to go for Peter Shilton, uh, which I still think is a mistake. <laughs> I mean, I, I would defend myself against almost any key, keeper, but uh, against Schultz. Um, but he said, no. you've got, And also, to be fair, Schultz was 31, 32. So Ron's probably thinking that Schultz would never last much longer, which he did. And he's come in, Ron Atkinson, this big extrovert. And suddenly, it's the first time in my lifetime that I can remember United suddenly becoming this very glamorous, sexy team. Expectations have gone through the roof. Brian Robson has arrived. Frank yeah. Stapleton has arrived. Remy Moses is there. A new team is slowly taking shape. In what way did the football under Ron Atkinson change from the Sexton era? Oh, it was much more attacking. Uh, you know, Dave built it around Big Joe Jordan up front. It was route one football. It was, you know, uh, bang the ball in and then try and get Sammy McElroy, Lou Macari, pick up the knockdowns. That, that sort of football. 
Uh, I mean, look, we did have wingers with Stevie Koppel, but Gordon Hill got sold. Uh, Stevie got injured. So it, it became a more direct sort of style of football. Under Ron, I mean, it was fabulous to watch. And if you go back on the record, I don't, I don't think I'm wrong, but you'll find that the first three months of almost every season, we, we were just flying. In fact, in 86, we won the first 10 or 11 games. We were just unstoppable. Gordon Strachan down the right, Jesper down the left, Frank in the middle, Sparky, Whiteside. It was, it was a, without a doubt, a championship team. But our problem came over December because Gordon Strachan and Jesper couldn't play in the mud that easily, especially Jesper. And we were a lovely footballing side. And then, you know, uh, then it became, then it, it came down to a level. Every, all the teams sort of got down to the same level. And then teams like Everton, who were built around just pure power, they started to, you know, make up ground on us. And that's how it went almost every season. And then, of course, it was always crucial injuries to Robert. Robert was, was the key. And when he wasn't there, there's just that extra element missing. Um, if we'd have had him for one full season, I think we'd have, we'd have walked away with the league. Do you think 82-83, you make it to both domestic finals, the Milk Cup final, you're possibly unfortunate in that. There's a few things going against United. I think there's Gordon McQueen struggling with an injury. There's uh, Brian Robson is out injured. Uh, Bruce Grobler, I think, is fortunate to perhaps stay on the Uh pitch after a challenge on Gordon McQueen. You also get to the FA Cup final against Brighton, which you win, but you've gone in, you've gone to the finals of both domestic competitions You've ended up third in the league. Watford have come from nowhere and finished second. It's similar in a way to what happens in 83-84. The 83-84 team, I think, if you look at it player for player, it's so strong. But Mm. you're chasing Liverpool right to the end, two or three points behind them going into game 37, game 38. But you're in the European Cup Winners' Cup. You're not getting easy ties. You've got Barcelona. Mm. You've got Juventus. Was that 84 team? maybe a, a bigger missed opportunity than 86? Yeah, yeah. No, you, you're spot on, 100%. You know, it, it, it needed... Look, we weren't as good as Liverpool. We we were as good as them on our day. And I think we beat them more often than they beat us. But one thing Liverpool had, which we just couldn't put our finger on, was this consistency, this ability to play in Europe midweek and come back and play uh, in the in the EPL or the old first division. We, we just didn't have the strength in depth. There was... Our first 11 was fine, but we were missing three or four quality players on the bench. And so you're right. We, we played Barcelona on a Wednesday in a massive match. And then Saturday, drop a point to two against Norwich or something. And then we went to Juventus and lost them. And the last kick of the match against a great Juventus side, but half the Italian World Cup in and Boniek and Platini. They scored in the 90th minute, Paolo Rossi, to beat us 2-1. Come back and then probably drop points in the weekend again. If we'd had kept out of Europe, in 84, we'd have won the league. If we'd have kept out of the two FA Cups in 83, we'd have won the league. So every year we got sidebarred with something else that, that took our, a little bit of momentum away. And you're right. I mean, lit, I think you're right. In, in, in 83, 84, we were only literally a point or two behind Liverpool going into the final two weeks. I think we drew three of our last four games yeah. uh, and ended up fourth or something or third. Or and, and then that's what, whenever I speak to my former teammates, that's where the conversation seems to end up is, I think if you remember Villa in 81, 82, they won it. 18, yeah. 81, yeah, with 14 yeah. players. That's, that's it. Now, you give us that season, you can pick any one of those five years, we win the league, and we win it handsomely. You know, and Villa did it right. They, they got knocked out of the cup early, probably. They played with a small squad. We needed that, and we just, with cups and everything else, we got involved in too much, which, again, happens today. A lot of teams, you look at them and you go, 
You don't want to qualify for Europa League. You really don't because it's going to take your focus off the league title and then you're going to start fighting relegation or whatever. So, yeah, it sounds like a lot of excuses, and we've lived with that for, you know, 30-odd years, that, that we, we should have won the league, absolutely no question, and we had the talent. It just required one season to have focused only on the league or something, and would have would have been fine. Was the problem for United that you had the first two, three seasons under Ron Atkinson, where it was Liverpool that you were pursuing? That was the target, rein them in, bring them down, take over, suddenly, out of nowhere, come this Everton team that you've mentioned earlier, you're saying they're more, they were more direct. Did that rise of Everton almost leave you scratching your head a bit? Yeah, I guess because if, you know, we were waiting for a gap to fill and we were waiting for, you know, we thought we were there ready to take over. So put it this way, if Liverpool and Everton were both at their peak at the same time. And then afterwards there was a gap. Hopefully we would have stepped in. Uh, that Everton team was, was a very, very good team. It was very cleverly built. With you know the Stevens bombing down the wing and big balls into the box for Sharpie and and Reedy in midfield. I mean, it embraced well. It it really was a hardworking, solid side, and they went on to do, you know to win in Europe. So they weren't just an English you know hammering you away doing winter type team. They could play uh, Andy Gray. Um, so yeah, you know, as soon as Liverpool drop, this team pops up from nowhere, and you're like, what? <laughs> Where did that come from? And so you're playing second fiddle to Everton. And unfortunately, when we beat them in the FA Cup, you know, they were a bit tired from playing midweek Europe. But we took a pounding five nil at Goodison Park that year and, and they physically just pushed us aside. And then that's why they started the 80, 85, 86 season when we won the first 11. I remember sitting with Gary Lineker at the England camp and um, we just won our you know, 10th. I think we drew the 11th at Luton. Yeah. We were like nine points clear or something, or 11 points clear. He walked, walked in and Gaz said to me, he said, oh, that's it. Here come the champions for the season. And I went, hey, steady on, long way to go. He said, come, do me a favor. He said, you're 11 points clear already. And, you, you know, you're going to be crazy to, to lose it from there. And, of course, we did. <laughs> and as mentioned, Brian Robson, there were frequent injuries and he was so important to United. It always amazes me that when they talk about the great United players of the last 30, 40 years, it almost seems to be they just pick in players from the last 20 years or whatever, as good as they are. When Brian Robson, I mean, if you remember how important he was to England going into the 86 World Cup and what a, what a crisis there was when his shoulder went. And he almost, he is a great player and I think he is acknowledged as a great player. Yet within that pantheon of great players, he is overlooked and his all-action style, maybe too brave for his own good, that cliche. Mm -hmm. But maybe in his case, it was true because as as strong as that United team was, I mean, Robson just gave them so much more and, and to lose them at critical periods, as you often did. Uh, well, I guess it did undermine your challenges at crucial periods. Yeah, no, it did. I mean, um, he was a great player within the context of that era. Remember in 82 for England, how he scored that goal, was it against France in the very first minute? Yeah, I think it was Spain. I think who we're playing, and '86 again. I was there in the squad when he got injured, and it, everything changed because we lost Robbo. Uh, any team loses a world class player, and he was—he was world class, no question. Uh, and had he remained fit for a full season, Remy Moses, we brought him from West Brom. He arrived, and within a short time, he was—he was full of injuries. Stevie Copper was a great winger. He had to retire. Look, every club has injuries. I, I think maybe we had a few more than than we wanted, and to critical players. Um, but, you know, it's it's something you have to work your way around. I'm sure every team will look at, at their injuries and say, well, they lost critical players. Just It just so happened that we lost the captain of England, so it had a bigger impact on us. 
it's often easy to forget that you were, and I, you, you, you said it earlier, you, you know, you're, you're English by birth, but you're South African by nature. Do you think that once you started to become a regular in the England squad, there was almost a perception, well, hang on, he's South African. He's, he's, he's not English. Was, was there a bit of that? Not too much. I mean, initially there was, because because when I joined the under-21s, I had a very strong South African accent when I first joined. But it, that was, I mean, I'm, I was English-born, my parents are English, you know, my dad played for Ipswich. It's not like I've got no, no history. Um, and I was a good player uh, for the under-21s. So it was like, okay, well, he's fine, let him play. And there was nothing. There was no, it didn't even take the mickey out of me having an accent. And, and I think over the years, I slowly, my accent started to sort of, become more Mancunian and, and, and less South African. So I did start to morph a little bit. No, there was never, there was never, never an issue. But it's just funny that I was seen as a foreigner when today, I mean, it, you know, Irish players were seen as foreigners almost back in the day. You know, best went to Northern Ireland homesick or Northern Ireland is just across the water. I mean, try coming 6,000 miles away from a different culture. They had no, no concept of foreign players at the time. And, a lot of my issues uh, that I had to battle with was was just the the fact that nobody cared. It just they put me in digs in a tiny little room, freezing cold, and said, "Right, do what everyone else does, fend for yourself." Well, you know, you you want to say, "Well, hang on a sec, I've got a family here. I I've been studying at university all day. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. And could I, I could do with some help." Nothing. Just get on with it. And that was, yeah, which is why psychologists and, and player liaison people are so important today. They want to help you settle it. I had no one to help me. So it really was a crash course in, in just survival. And even when you make the first team, you know, the manager called me in the following morning and, and I was wearing a, a student T-shirt with a big middle finger. <laughs> and I was driving a six-wheeler transit van that I was going to take around Europe when United released me. And he said, that piece of crap you got parked in the, in the car park, get rid of it. You know, your jeans have got holes in them. And he said, here's an open check, go and buy a whole bunch of clothes and go and buy and go and pick a club car. And I went, what? And so I went downtown Manchester and went into this showroom before I got the nice clothes. And this guy said, get the hell out of here. And I said, come to buy an expensive car. He said, yeah. He said, get out. And he had to, I said, phone the club. He phoned the club. And he came back, oh, Mr. Baby, you're the new goalkeeper. Oh, okay, well, let's find you a car. You know, it was just a cultural, uh, just, turned upside down that I'm now wearing an Armani suit. And also what, what you know a lot of your listeners might might find interesting is I was the only single guy on the team. And I was 20, long blonde hair and, and confident, cocky lad. And so I go into the nightclubs in Manchester. And obviously before I played in the team, the, the girls wouldn't even look at me. It was like, you know, complete 20-year-old. Suddenly I'd walk in wearing an Armani suit and parking my fancy car outside and there were just chicks everywhere, you know giving me phone numbers and all sorts. And, and so it was, it was like, whoa, what? I'm the same guy I was three, you know, three weeks ago before I made my debut. You wouldn't give me the time of day. And now you're slipping me phone numbers and wanting to come visit. It was just, um, yeah. And it, I think, I think I know that a psychologist, a, a, some, a helping hand, uh, somebody would have been helpful for me. Uh, and most players would have had that with their family uh, and their school boyfriends, but I was on my own. So I had to just try and figure it all out myself. The Armani suit aside, though, you weren't a typical footballer. You had a, as you said earlier, a different background. You had academic leanings. You'd been at university. So you're coming into English football at a time when the drinking culture, I mean, it's still probably at that stage had 20 or 30 years to go before it's phased out of the game. 
were you able to steer clear of that fairly easily because you had outside interests or were you able to stay out of it because you were of a different culture? Yeah, I think that the latter is probably the truth. Um, also, I, was, I had a very strong opinion as to you know how to live my life. But it did get tested, and, and I got pigeonholed because of it, because we were trained from 10 till 12. And I, I popped into Hamburg on the way to, to United, as I mentioned. They trained morning and afternoon. The Dutch were training morning and afternoon. So I get there, and they train from 10 till 12, and they head to the pub. And I'm like, where's everyone going? You know, And it's like, oh, they go to pub across the road. And I'm like, but I want to train. So I say to the junior coaches, I'll train this afternoon. Oh, no, there is no training. I said, you haven't got anybody training at all? No. Nope. So, you know, I think, oh, it's just nuts. Then I go across to the pub and um, yeah, they have a pint. Why not? Uh, fish and chips, greasy fish and chips, and, and play darts and, and snooker, which I couldn't play, and chat. An hour into this, I'm sitting there going, what the effing hell am I doing? Because the food is not good for me. I don't, I won't drink. I mean, I can drink, but it's only for after a game and it's a pint or two. And so I didn't, I stopped going. And then I had the situation where in, in South Africa, I was at university from eight in the morning till five and I trained with a team called Kaiser Chiefs that I eventually did play two years with after retirement. And then I'd go and train with my team, Vitz. So I'd put in a, a three-hour training session on top of, you know, a full day at university. And I'd find myself back in my little tiny room at my digs at, at half past 12 with a whole day to fill and not a single soul in the world who knew me. My fellow, you know, sort of youth team players, they all had friends and, and they would also go to the pub. So uh, it's literally took me only about a week before I thought, if I don't do something, I'm going to get depressed because I'm just hanging around all day doing nothing. I'd, I'd walk around the streets of Manchester and you know, looking at shops thinking, well, I don't, have, I don't have any money to buy anything. What am I going to do? And it was just, it was just nuts and no advice, nothing. So yeah, eventually I found out that the youth team some afternoons would, would stay. So I had to stay and go and train with them. And especially, and this, this happened when I was in the first team, these kids would look at me and go, well, Gary Bay, you're doing here. He's a first team keeper. And I just said, put the crosses in, get the shots, let's do it. It just helped fill up the day as well. So, um, yeah, culturally it was, and even when I finished, and, and it's a story I've told a few times, but when I became a more regular for the England team, I think Clements had retired and I played a few games and Robert and them sort of saw me more as a, as an equal. Um, they invited me to Sunday lunch. So it was Robert, Kevin Moran, Norman Whiteside and Paul McGrath, who are four of the biggest drinkers you've ever seen. And I joined them for lunch one day, and I've just never seen anything like it, man. I literally would take a pint and bomb. And they were onto pint number seven when I was still gagging on pint number three. And I tried to be one of the lads. I really did. And they're hard enough to understand, Irish, Northern Irish, and a Geordie. But give them five pints. <laughs> and uh, I just got up, and I said, sorry, guys. Not who I am. I can't do this. And, and so that, that, even though I was there 10 years, and I don't think any of the players will ever tell you that I was one of them. Uh, they might say I'm a decent guy because I am. I was always fun, always worked hard and all those good things. But was I part of a team five? No, I just was quite happy to stay out of it and be my own person. Still to come on when shorts were short. And I felt twinges and then the next week, I think, you know, probably cut it down to one and by and before the fifth game I'm like I'm not training at all all week which I knew was going to be a problem anyway because you can't remain a professional if you're only going to play and not train thank you for downloading when shorts were short you might be interested in supporting the show's patreon page 
Supporters will get each new episode a fortnight early, as well as bonus episodes exclusive to patrons. Show your support for the podcast at patreon.com forward slash shorts were short. Your support for the podcast is appreciated. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Sports science wasn't a thing back then, and it's not necessarily specifically applicable to that United side. I'm sure there were many teams in that era who, if they had drunk less, they might have been more successful because that United side was just, it was laden with talent. Well, here's here's my argument that I had in 1980. I, t- I turned to a few of the lads uh, when I was with England because Terry McDermott was a huge drinker and all that. So, and I made some comment as a 21-year-old third-choice England keeper, and they were like, blah, 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 they're drinking again. I said, geez, you guys have got to back off the drink. I mean, you know, imagine how successful you could be. I made that point without drinking, and someone turned to me and said, all right, guys, then, all right, tell us who are the European champions of the last six effing years. And I went, oh, Christ. Nottingham Forest twice, Liverpool twice, Aston Villa. So what the effing hell are you talking about? And that, that was the reality. Because England dominated the world. So how can drinking 20 pints at a lunchtime be a bad thing? And they would say, oh, it releases the pressure, and that's why we can take more pressure than the bloody Europeans can take. That was it. That was my argument smashed. <laughs> I kept quiet after that. We'll move on to your international career in a moment. A couple of uh, Twitter posts. Roca Retro asks, what memories do you have of the epic United v Barcelona game in 1984? It's a game that United players of that period reference usually as the atmosphere being something extra special what what do you remember about that night uh just maradona really maradona shoot i remember more about the the away game because going to the no cup was just i loved the away games it wasn't the same pressure as playing in england the weather was different you know you got to see different parts of europe it was just graham hogg was was brought in a young center back because we had an injury to mcqueen and he, he scored, unfortunately for him, scored an own goal. And then in the last kick of the match, they put one in the top corner. So we were 2-0 down coming to Old Trafford. And I remember that before the game, there was a different atmosphere because for United, of course, Europe and, and 68 is, is huge. And going into the game, you could feel the tension in the ground and the excitement that Maradona and Bern Schuster were arriving and mighty Barcelona were there. And in the tunnel, we were stood there and we'd spoken in the dressing room about how the fact that, you know, so a wet Manchester night, just get at them, just get at them. But, you know, you're not going to outplay this team, but you can outmuscle them and you can scare the living crap out of them. And I'm in the tunnel there going, smash them. You know, I used to do in the tunnel, on, on, you know, a number of times. I used to smash them, put the ball <laughs> in the air, go into them, you know. And I'm shouting at the top of my voice and I look across and you can see these Spanish eyes. <laughs> what the hell is this? Because, you know, I knew that was a big difference between us culturally. In Europe, is they played football on the ground, and I mean they could be stuck, and of course they could, and they could they could dish it out. Uh, but when it came when it came to really getting down to it, they, they they were crapping themselves against playing against the British team, and we knew that. So you know we were shouting and mouthing in the tunnel, got in there, and that's how we went at them. And the crowd from the kickoff was just unbelievable. You know, fans singing in waves, and we got the one goal, and, and of course then we knew it was on. And they started to wobble a bit, and then Robert got got an equalizer, and then they, then you could see the panic, and then they they turned to Ben Schuster and Maradona, they started getting them onto the ball as much as possible. And that's when we started to panic. Oh crap! Here he comes, Maradona. He was getting free kicks around the edge of the box. So I'm thinking, don't don't change anything, 
don't steal a yard because it's Maradona because he'll stick at the other side. So I just, I played the odds and, and, you know, then we, then we got the winner. And then it was a case of not screwing up. So for the last 10 minutes, you're thinking, all right, just don't do anything stupid. Just yeah, come and get the crosses, kill the game, slow it down. And of course, when the final whistle went, there was just a pitch invasion and it was an incredible night. And again, we got to the semis. We played Juventus. We went over there having drawn at home and we were drawing 1-1 with a minute to go. We didn't have Robbo. We didn't have a whole number. We didn't have Ray Wilkins. We didn't have Robbo. We had Norman Whiteside playing as a defensive midfielder or something. We had this patched up team and, and we were holding this, this World Cup side with the three best players in the world, Boniek, Rossi and um, Platini. And we conceded in the last minute. So I'm sure a lot of fans of that time will, will go, wow, we were so close so often. And that really summed up the 80s. So close so often. On the international front, you're still involved with Dave Sexton. He was your manager with the under-21s. You played in the second leg of the 84 European Championships triumph over Spain. At the end of 83, after England's failure to qualify for the Euros, uh, for Euro 84, Ray Clements retires and suddenly you're going to be England's second choice keeper. I think your competition at the time, the likes of Nigel Spink and Chris Woods, Shilton his first Mm. choice. What did you think you needed to do at that time to cement the second choice? And what did you think you needed to do to become first choice? Yeah, I think second choice was was pretty cemented. I mean, Woodsy and, and Spinksy are good goalkeepers. Uh, and Woodsy and I were roommates in the World Cup in 86. And, and we were roommates from under-21s. But, you know, I was the, I was the first choice at under-21s ahead, ahead of Woodsy. So I'd always sort of maintained that position. But there were little spells when, 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 you know, if I wasn't playing well or he was, where there was talk of him becoming number two, and quite rightly so, because he was a very good keeper. But it was pretty much agreed that I was I was a number two. So I wasn't that concerned looking behind me. Not that they weren't good keepers, but I, I was focused above. But Schultz was a problem. It's a little bit like Ter Stegen now for Germany with Manuel Neuer. You know, you, you can be really, really, really good and still not get to play because Schultz was just unbelievable. Just didn't make mistakes. Trained like like a Trojan. I mean, I thought I was a good trainer. I trained with him, and I'm like, wow, wow, this is somebody who's actually training even harder than I do. This is a... so I actually loved training with him, um, but he was very much his own man. Didn't chat much, didn't help you in a training session, but wouldn't engage too much with you. So really, it was a case of waiting for him to retire. And and at the time, Clem retired. Schultz was already in his early 30s, and I thought, okay, well, this is around the corner for me. I'd waited seven years behind two of the two, uh, I think the two best English goalkeepers of all time. So I was already grinding my teeth going, what the bloody hell? And then this guy just keeps on going, Schultz, just keeps on going and keeps on putting in great performances. You'd won your first England cap in March 85 against the Republic of Ireland at Wembley. You've got the FA Cup final comes before your second cap. England are out in Mexico. It's a triangular tournament, a dress rehearsal for the World Cup the following year and you play against Mexico. By then, Heisel has happened. English clubs have been pulled out of Europe by the government. Mm. What was the mood like in the England camp, knowing that all of you, you know, were not going to be playing European football the following year? can't tell you, to be honest, because I, I, I wasn't focused on that. I think because we were with England, we were all looking to the World Cup the next year. So that was, that was what that tour was about. Maybe players who weren't in the England squad sitting at home might have, have had more thoughts on that. I was just thinking, you know, we need to win the league and, and I need to take over from Shorten. Those are my two aims. And both were very doable. I'd had a, you know, I made a mistake on my first England game. Um, Liam Brady took a shot. 
simple shot. I just dived to my left and thought, oh, <laughs> seriously. And next thing I've looked, it squirmed under my arm somehow. And I went, oh, no, really, I'm my England debut. But the second one, we lost one to Mexico, but I had no chance with the goal. And I played reasonably well. So I thought, you know, let's move on and forward. And, and going into 80, uh, 85, 86, I really thought this could be the year in which we win the league and, and I get to play for England in the World Cup. And that's how it started off with those 10, 10 wins, 10 games. I thought, great, everything's on track. Let's go and win the league. Let me um, maybe put pressure on Schultz and maybe he is getting too old and maybe he has a bad season. You know, I think in February of that year, I'm busy training with England and I've got my foot caught in a hole in the ground in a divot at Bisham Abbey. And I went one way and my leg went the other and tore the cartilage and that was it. It carried me off and I thought, oh, this could be the end of everything. And that was in the February. And I had to, I only had a few months to get fit for the World Cup. And, and Bobby Robson quite nicely said, look, you, you've been with us all the way. If you're fit, I'll take you as my number two, but you better be fit. So I worked like a dog to get fit. Got fit, got in the squad, headed off to, to the World Cup. And then within two weeks, my knee was like a balloon. And I knew then that I was in trouble. I knew that I'd pushed it a bit too hard, perhaps, or maybe the knee wasn't strong enough. But effectively, it was the end of my career. At the start of the 85-86 season, I mean, you were first choice at United, but Ron Atkinson had brought in Chris Turner from Sunderland. It was unusual in those days for any club, never mind a big club, to have two strong keepers. Was that the biggest mm. challenge to you in your time as United's first choice? And, and what was your reaction to Ron Atkinson bringing in Chris Turner? I mean, there's always a second keeper. So it didn't bother me whether it was Chris Turner or Jeff Whelans or Gary Walsh, Stephen Pears. They'd all been there. <clears throat> Obviously, Chris arrived with, with the belief that he could take over. I didn't see it. Uh, called it arrogance, called it whatever, but I just didn't see Chris as, as, you know, as good enough in the air. He was a fantastic goal line keeper. Wonderful reflexes, but he couldn't control the box couldn't come out for crosses. And although I got a bit of stick over the years for coming for crosses, it was how we pushed the opposing uh, attack out of the box. It was me dominating the air. And every once in a while, you're going to drop one. And Bruce Grobler had the same issue. But, but you look at the goals against record and you go, wow, you know, you kept the opponents far away from you, which was, which was good. Again, I'm not making less of his abilities. I just didn't feel that, that Chris was a, a big threat. And as it turned out, I think he had one little run when I was injured, but overall, um, it wasn't until I, I had to retire that he got a, a chance in the team. So, And when he did play, he, because he was a goal liner, my defense would have to drop deep. And so when I got back in the team, the very first thing I had to do was get the hell out of the box. Get off me. You're on top of me. Let me let me come and dominate the airwaves here and at least you know, uh, push everyone up and take the strikers out with you. And so we had two different styles. But there's always challenge. You know, it's always, as I say, Stephen Pears was a good goalkeeper. He went on to do some stuff. Gary Walsh. Uh, all excellent keepers. You just got to believe in yourself and keep going. You'd started, as you say, you'd started 85, 86 in brilliant fashion, won the first 10 league games. If you look at the signings that summer, though, for United, there weren't really the big arrivals of previous summers. And there were three arrivals during the season Colin Gibson, Peter Davenport, Terry Gibson, good players in their own right. But if you look at where United were maybe trying to get to, they seemed to be, there, there seemed to be a dip in quality from where you'd been under Ron Atkinson in his first four or five seasons. Was it clear to you maybe that this was the season that United had to win the league under Ron Atkinson, otherwise there would be a change? Yeah, I didn't look that deeply into it. I must admit some of the players he brought in, I thought they were sort of backups for the players that we had as opposed to new signings. And, and I agree with you, my, my beef all along was 
what we did with Robbo and Frank Stapleton at the start of Ron Atkinson should have been done on a regular basis. And, and to be fair, he did. He brought in Jasper and Gordon. He brought in a lot of a lot of really, really top class players early on. And you're right, it, it petered out. But maybe he had financial constraints. You know, uh, money wasn't as plentiful then as it is now. So it's hard for me to to decide. But you're right. The problem was that that '85 season in not winning the the title. Then the next season, Ron was under huge pressure and. Um, the big problem was that I came back from the World Cup with my knee absolutely messed. Robert's shoulder was messed. Norman Whiteside came back injured. And the three of us sat on the physio's table for about five months. And it's in those five months that United ended up second bottom, third bottom or something. I think in any team, if you take the spine, if you take your, your, you know, your, your goal, your main goalkeeper and your main midfielder and your main striker. And I think there was a couple of other injuries. Then you're going to, I think Paul McGrath might have also been out. Uh, you're going to struggle. And that was why they struggled, because the players they brought in, uh, with all due respect, probably weren't up to scratch. And one or two hadn't worked out. Gary Bertels hadn't worked out. Wonderful at Nottingham Forest, but for some reason. Alan Brazil, brilliant at Ipswich, didn't work out. So it was just it was just weird. Maybe it's, it's the pressures of United. or um, So yeah, once you, once three or four of us of the, of the regular first team were injured, unfortunately, the rest of the team sort of really, really struggled. Next thing I know, I'm sitting on the you know physio's bench five months into the season and, and Ron's got the sack. We'll come to the end of your time at United in a moment. Just some final Twitter questions <clears throat> first. Uh, this is from Pompey Rabbi. Did he think Peter Shilton should have retired earlier for England, thus allowing him and Chris Woods more of a chance to play? Oh, I would have said so. <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the day, Shilton didn't make any mistakes. He was a great keeper. He was a great keeper in 86. You can't blame him for the handball. Uh, played again in 1990. Didn't make any mistakes. At the end of the day, you know, if he stays that fit and plays that well, there's nothing I can do. And I can try and be better than him, which I was trying to do. You know, could my life have been so different without Shilton? Absolutely. Had one of my parents been Scottish and I'd have chosen to play for Scotland, or if I had a Scottish wolfhound in the house, maybe I could have claimed Scottish <laughs> a link. <laughs> uh, you know, they were desperate for a goalkeeper. Then that guy called Ali McLeod, I think. In, and Alan, just Alan Ruff, yeah, the keeper. Alan Ruff, Ruff Alan yeah. Ruff, sorry, McLeod was Alan Ruff, that's it. And, you know, every week you'd, I'd hear Gordon McQueen and Martin Buck and say, only we had a goalkeeper. And I'm thinking, here I am, stuck in, you know, down to 21s at 23 years of age and not getting a shot because I'm behind the two greatest goalkeepers in the history of English, along with Banksy, the two of the three best ever. And if I'd have played for Scotland, I could have racked up 150 caps and played in World Cup. Who knows? And at the end of the day, Shilton was that good that unfortunately I suffered, Woodsy suffered. Although Woodsy was lucky that he um, he was um, he took over after me and uh, he got 40, 50 caps under his belt. But I'm sure Nigel Spinks and a whole bunch of goalkeepers around my era, even Phil Parks, go back to those that time. Big Joe Corrigan when he got you know a handful of caps. We all yeah. suffered because Clements and Shilton were just so good. Durban Tomorrow Now asks, what was your favourite away ground to visit in the English League for atmosphere? <clears throat> Probably Anfield, just because the aggro was just so intense. You know, got spat at every time we got off the bus and thought, okay, here we go. <laughs> so you would thrive on that? Yeah, I, I loved it. I loved it. It was the real thing. It was it takes me back to my childhood listening to United, Sheffield United, and that the noise of the crowd and... I loved it. I always was up for the challenge and loved walking down that, you know, this is Anfield and thinking, right, bring it on. We'll, we'll show you something. 
And I love the fact the cop would give me stick. And as soon as I go out, they'd, they'd start abusing me and I'd wave at them. And, and there was always a good interaction. And they'd chuck a bunch of old soggy pies and other crap at me. But I, you know, I just enjoyed it because we had a good record against Liverpool. We really did. Just that they kept winning the league. <laughs> Verso JVTV asks, hmm. with your dad winning a league championship medal with Ipswich, were they ever on your radar as a club? I think we covered that. You had the trial with them, didn't you, early on yes, in your yes, career? Yes. And that, um, that could have that could have gone very differently had the weather been different. Yeah. One thing um, about the United keepers, they seem to have a, a shelf life of seven or eight years. It's taken almost forty years <laughs> for David de Gea to match your time as United's number one. Um, although you know you're effectively done in the English game by your late twenties, owing to the knee injury that we'll discuss in a moment. You had nine, ten years in that United side. That is unusual if you look at what follows you afterwards. And, you know, they've had periods with Schmeichel, Van der Sar, but in between there's been quite a few different goalkeepers that they've tried. You come across as a, a culturally very curious guy. You mentioned that on European trips it was the away games you preferred. You know, you're born in England. You grew up in South Africa. You're living in the States now. And you, you mentioned on the European trips, it was the away games you look forward to. Had it not been for you being at a huge club like United, do you think you you would have been the kind of guy to have wanted to play in Europe? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Even, even at United, there were a number of occasions where I thought of just walking out and and going to the continent and playing in the sunshine. I mean, I would love to have played for Malaga or something. Can you imagine living in Puerto Banus or something, <laughs> lying on the beach and... Um, and I love the, the way the Europeans played it. They didn't smash each other. It wasn't a war every single game. I mean, they got stuck in it. You know, I just found that every single time I played, you know, you go back to the 80s, most teams had a big center forward. Lee Chapman at Leeds, Grant Sharp at, at Everton, you know, whoever it was, Niall Quinn. Uh, and the very first thing they do, put the ball on the keeper and smash him. And so, you, uh, and I was good in the air, but eventually you get hit so many times, you start to think, you know, maybe I shouldn't even be coming for these because it's just a war zone. And when you get knocked off it, you didn't always get the decision from the ref. That was the other side. So it became risky to, to come for certain high balls. Certainly to punch them was the, the simplest thing. So yeah, when I played abroad, they played a different type of soccer. It was much more cultured on the ground. So I, I would have, I'm no doubt I would have fared better playing on the continent. But it's Man United. Uh, in all due respect to other clubs, if it had, if it had been at, to say, West Brom, for example, I might have gone, thanks, Bruce Bond, but I'm, I'm out of here. You know, I'm going to go play abroad. And, but it's United. And every time I thought, you know what, I'm, I can't do any, I can't handle the Manchester weather anymore. Or um, I think, but it's Manchester United. You can't, you know, you just can't walk away from a club that big and that fantastic. So I just dug in and dug in and dug in. And, and again, had we eventually won the league, I probably would have gone, well, okay, at last I've got reward I was looking for but the hardest part is you put all that in and you just come short I think you know if you look at our history uh, that time I was there the nine full seasons that I played without injury I think eight of them we win with a chance of winning the title until the last few weeks so you know to take nothing out of that in terms of the league but I guess again I'll take the FA Cup so they were still incredible occasions so there is that to look back at and as someone who's gone on to work as a, as a football analyst you'll remember no doubt that the FA Cup as you said as well earlier before the Premier League it was the biggest game of the mm -hmm. season in English football the two FA Cups 
do you look back on your time at United as just slightly underachieving as as a team? Do you feel that certainly within the Atkinson era, there was not just one league title, maybe two league titles, because it was a really, really strong outfit for, for most of Atkinson's time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure every other of my teammates feels the same. We should have won the league. There's no question. And we all I say regret it. You can't regret it because you give your best. We, we just look back with a, a tinge of sadness and go, wow what should have been. Um, like, again, credit Liverpool and Everton for being good teams, but then Villa pop up and steal a, a title. And it really was a steal because they weren't they weren't as good a team as, as most. But they, had, they put it together in one season brilliantly. Credit to them. And so when you see that, you think, no, nah, we, sh- we should have. And it would have taken so much pressure off because it, be- it had become insane every start of every season. This is the season. You know, and by March, this is the season, and by April, this should be the season, and by May, yeah, we'll try again next year. So, yeah, it, it's hugely frustrating, but yeah, it's the journey. Uh, it, you know, once you finish, all that stuff becomes history. You can't change the history, and, and I look back at it as a journey and think it was an incredible journey. Tough as it was, loved it. Loved coming back to England and achieving my boyhood dreams of playing in at Anfield and White Hart Lane and um, Highbury. You know, this, it was a kid, you dream of that, and very few kids get to, to see it come true. Play for England, go to a World Cup. So, yeah, could we, should we? Yeah, absolutely. But looking back, hey, it was all just part of the journey. Final few questions. The last one from Twitter, John Dyson. How fit was Gary really for the 86 World Cup? You talked about working really, really hard mm. to get fit for that World Cup. Looking yeah. back, was the knee strong enough to go to that World Cup? Did you take a risk? I didn't, I didn't think I was taking a risk because I got myself fit. What, what I was told later by the surgeons was that sometimes when you have cartilage operations, the cartilage gets a bit soggy and it can break off into little bits. And so one in 10, as far as I remember, I'm not a medic. I'm just going by what I can remember. One in 10 or thereabouts, you should rest a bit longer and allow the, the cartilage to solidify. Uh, I must have been one of those one in 10 and I got fit, felt good, could die properly and pass all the fitness tests. So I didn't see any, any problem. It wasn't until we got to Colorado to do altitude training that I woke up one morning after. I went, in fact, the, uh, so Mike Kelly was the Eng- England goalkeeper coach. Yeah. Took me aside and gave me a really, really hard test. And that probably, and it wasn't Mike's fault, don't get me wrong, but probably didn't need that. I'd already worked hard and I was giving my knee a rest. And he said, no, no, Bobby Robson needs to know that you're fit. So we went out and he worked me for two hours solid. And it was the following morning that I woke up and my knee was like a balloon and I went, oh, crap. And so we put some ice on and we let it settle. But I knew right away then that I was in trouble. And it never it never really recovered. Every time I, I felt the swelling had gone down enough or they would inject the fluid out of my knee. And then a couple of days it was back. And then the doctor said to me, okay, we're not doing anything because you've got a problem. And Bobby Robson came across me and said, look, I'm now going to put Woodsy as number two. Uh, you drop down. He said, but if something happened, if Schultz gets injured and, and Woods plays and you're on the bench and Woodsy gets injured, can you perform? I said, absolutely. I said, give me an injection. I'll be out there. So he said, okay, good. Fortunately, it never came to that. But um, when I got back from the World Cup in Manchester, the surgeon operator, when I came around, he said, your knee is a mess. You're not going to play again, I don't think. By the time Alex Ferguson turns up, you know that your career is coming to an end. It's looking that way. He arrived in November. Um, I'd already been on the treatment couch for like three, four months. 
Um, so his first three or four months, I'm watching from the outside going, yeah, this is an amazing guy. It's interesting. He's got a new approach. He's young. And about the March, he comes to me and says, look, Chris Turner's injured. And I need to know, are you going to ever play again or not? So he said, can you play this weekend? And I went, yeah. He said, all right, good. And, and I didn't know if I could. I just said yes and thought, well, you know, he's right. I must either figure this out. Either I'm fit or I retire. So we went to Luton. And I remember the lads in the bus saying, watch out for the hairdryer. I went, what? We start the game. We go one nil up just before halftime. Cross comes in. I start coming for it. Decide it's not mine. Shout away. Colin Gibson gets beat for our post. 1-1. So we come in. So Alex walks up to me and goes, and the goal? Thought it was mine. Decided it wasn't. Shouted away. It's up to the defender to deal with it. He turns to Gibbo and he walks up to him and puts his nose to Gibbo's nose and starts screaming at him. And I see Gibbo's hair going back and I think, I realize, so that's the hairdryer. Because I've been searching everywhere to see where Alex plugged his hairdryer in. And I said, so that's it. And I'm just looking at the ground going, don't laugh, don't, don't, don't show any response. And as we're walking out, um, I'm the last one to leave the locker room, the change room. He, and I'm what, 27, I'm one of the senior players. And he looks at me, I'm looking at him and he sees me looking and he calls me over and he says, Gary, he said, there's some players you scream at and there's some players you talk nicely to, but the key is to know the difference. And I went, wow. Before that, managers screamed at everyone or talked nicely to everyone. This guy actually understood each individual person and what makes them tick. And I'm going, wow, who is this guy? And I played another four more games for him. And after the fourth one, I couldn't move. I think I only conceded two goals in five games. So I was like, okay, that's looking good. But the morning after the fifth game, I couldn't get out of bed and I thought, okay. It had been increasingly more difficult. So, you know, after the first game, I, I, I didn't want to overtrain. So I like, I think I trained twice that week and I felt twinges. And then the next week, I think, you know, I probably cut it down to one. And by, and before the fifth game, I'm like, I'm not training at all, all week, which I knew was going to be a problem anyway, because you can't remain a professional if you're only going to play and not train. And after the game, I'm like, okay. And Sadix was great about it. I mean, when I, you know, when I took him all the notes and I said, look, I've, I've got to retire, he was really good because he retired at a similar age, uh, 20, 28, 29, I think. And he just said, can I, can I keep you at the club? Can I make you a goalkeeper coach? Can we help you? I said, thanks. Really appreciate it. But I've missed those palm trees and I'm going home. <laughs> How did your knee hold up when you returned to the game briefly for a couple of years with Kaiser Chiefs? Yeah, that was interesting because I went back to Cape Town. In 87, you know, with a, with a bit of money, I invested in property in London two months before the crash. So that was just, <laughs> that didn't go too well. Lost a whole bunch of money there. But I was sitting in Cape Town just wondering what to do. In fact, I went straight back to university and I was completing a, a computer science degree uh, just to keep me occupied. And the local football club, um, I went to watch the training one day and then the goalkeeper said, would I help? So I did. And then went back the following week and the week after, and then I put on a couple of demonstrations and I dived and landed and went, that doesn't feel too bad. And basically what had happened was that with a lot of rest, the knee had settled down. And, you know, if I put too much pressure on it, it was it would overreact. If I didn't, if I didn't train too much, it was actually fine. And so that's what I did. I, I trained a little bit and the end of the season thought, let me give it another crack because uh, South Africa weren't part of FIFA then. So my uh, retirement didn't breach any rules. And I joined Kaiser Chiefs and I didn't train. I just played. And I found that actually by just playing, I would be all right. Because even in a match, you don't get that much to do. So, uh, And I actually played some of my best football. We won the league. I got my league title. Second year at Chiefs, I got my league title. And I retired the day after. <laughs> I got the league title. We nearly blew it on the final day. And I went, you know what? I am done with this pressure. And at 30 years of age, I just hung the boots up and walked away. 
Now I just do commentaries here in Miami on local soccer and cover the Spanish and French leagues and live on the beach. And um, You got back to your palm trees in the end. I've got um, back with my palm trees. I don't have anything united. I'm looking around the house. I had a few things in my other house united and some of the memories. But, you know, life moves on. They're great memories. And if ever I have to think back, um, I treasure them. Um, but I've got kids, grandkids, a beach to look after, palm trees to look after. <laughs> Life moves on and you move with it. I appreciate your time, Gary. Tell listeners where they can find you, any of your work and your social media, if you want to share that. At Gary Bailey underscore one is Twitter. And uh, if you go to my website, GaryBaileySpeaks.com, you'll find a whole bunch of stuff about me and what I used to do and all that. And uh, my commentaries are it's paramount plus here in the states i don't know i i think it is in fact when i do the nwsl which is the women's uh, matches we're on twitch which goes around the world so you can hear me doing commentary on twitch on nwsl occasionally and on what they call usl which is the second division here yeah people just search out there they'll find me but there isn't much to find these days i'm just a a dude you know just doing his thing and chilling and relaxing Thank you to Gary Bailey. There'll be links in the show notes to games featuring Gary and his website and Twitter handle. Hope you guys all have a nice Christmas. As always, please do rate and review when shorts were short on Apple Podcasts, even if that's not the podcast provider you use for subscribing. Apple Podcasts remains the all-important way for any show to grow. Thank you all for listening. The podcast can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at Shorts Were Short and Facebook.com forward slash Shorts Were Short. If you want to join the group page on there, please do. If you want to drop the show an email, you can get me Shorts Were Short at 1607westegg.com. All my work can be found at DanielRuizTizen.com. The podcast can be supported at Patreon.com forward slash Shorts Were Short. Sign up for your season ticket there. Lots of content on the way. Thank you for your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80s synth pop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz Tyson. This has been When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm.